One Space Love Podcast for the love of music, lifestyle and well-being while caring for our planet. On this podcast, I will be chatting with musicians, artists and creative minds that are living life on purpose while doing what they love. You're listening to episode eight of One Space Love Podcast and I'm your host, Stephanie Pappas. My guest today is Paul George from Tijuana Cartel, where he co-produces with Carrie O'Sullivan, um, and he also has the project Black Rabbit George. He is no stranger to One Space events. One of our um, most memorable events was at the Sydney Opera House at the event Earthbeats, where Paul was part of Wild Marmalade, and. Um, Yes, what a memorable event that was and what a dream team. Um, I've also held events um, with Tijuana Cartel at One Space HQ towards the end of um, having that venue and one of the events was opened by Kelly Dad, and I and I just have such fond memories of that event because I remember we just pushed the boundaries and limits of that space um, with the the volume of of the music that was coming out of the sound system and the amount of people we fitted into the space um and just the it was just such full high vibrations you can actually capture um some of that the highlights of that event and some interviews thanks to Bondi Beach Radio and I've got it on um One Space Love YouTube channel it's, it's a really great clip and I've also worked with Paul George um, in his solo project called Black Rabbit George, which we talk about in this in this chat. But um, it's really nice to get to talk to him during this such unusual time that we're all in isolation and to take time to really go deep and see, you know, who gave him permission to do what he's love he loves and to to walk along this path. Um, as a dream, like he's, he's living the dream really. He's, you know, plus he's overcoming his, his, um, his obstacles that are in the way and personal struggles by continuing showing up, doing what he loves and it's really admirable. Um, so yeah, this is episode eight with Paul George. I hope you enjoy it. So hi, Paul. So good to catch up with you here in isolation and it's been a while since we've seen each other face to face. How are you going? Good, good. Good to see you, Steph. Yeah. (laughs) And um, thanks for coming on to One Space Love podcast. I wanted to start off by asking you, could you introduce yourself to the listeners by answering the statement, I am? That's a it's a deep question for the first one, isn't it? Uh, hi, I am Paul George. I'm a musician, a professional dork, and um, mountain dweller. Mm. You are a professional dork. <laughs> I don't know. I just slipped out. <laughs> Must be true. But it, I really like that because, you know, looking at all your footage online, you definitely don't come across as a dork. But I think that when knowing you personally, there there is a, a quirkiness and a humour about you and your personality, you know. But when you see you online, you have this like 
enormous presence about you and when you see you live as well. So, yeah, it must be interesting for you to step into that energy. You know, there's professionalism about everything that you do. Is that something that you learnt? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think from enough, um, like, uh, I do have a nervous energy that's normal, normally in life, which I've come to kind of like myself for, but it, it does seem to go on stage. Which is, it should be the other way around, I think. But, um, you know, as long as, the, as long as the equipment's working and we're all there playing music, as soon as I, I get on stage, I feel like nothing could, could go wrong, which is generally the opposite how I feel um, day to day. So it's, you know, so I, I do think I, I seem to have a different persona on stage but it's not so much, I mean, it's a little bit rehearsed, but it more sort of happened naturally, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect to, I thought I thought we'd end on this, but we're going to, I think we'll go, for, we're going to go with the flow. So yeah. when you're on stage, there is this presence about all of you performing. And I mean, you're known as one of the best live acts in Australia, it's the music industry. I would proudly say that is true. Um, and so... Yeah, where, where am I going with this? I think that I know there is a nervous side of you and an anxious side of you. So what does it take to get you up on there? Is that something that you always have known that just when you're in the pocket or is it the team that's involved that allows you to relax when you're on the stage? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of all those things. Um, I mean, been doing it a long time and it's something I've always always wanted to do, even from when I was a teenager. I can't, I've never thought of doing anything else. So even when I first left high school, I was sort of in punk bands or I'd nervously be on stage, but I was the same. Once I got on there, I don't know, like fish to water, I suppose. So, I mean, how to answer that is a lot of it's to do with the team because uh, I can really trust the musicians that I work with and we always, you know, we usually have a trusted sound guy with a couple of good ones that we work with. So, yeah, having the team really helps. Just sort of, if you get on there and you worry that something's not going to work or something's going to break, that all that sort of confidence can go pretty quickly. So yeah, it does have a lot to do with what's around you, but also has a lot to do with that's. I really enjoy it. You know, really, I look forward to it. It's something I, I love doing. You're in your element, and what is you know? You said you've worked with some different um, sound engineers. Who? What are some of your favourite people that are you like your dream team that you love working with? All right. Well, um, there's a couple really. But first to come to mind is uh, Damien Charles. Is a, everybody? If you work in the industry, everybody knows Damien Charles. He's, um, he's a great guy. It's always good to have like a political debate with it about sort of two in the morning and, and it's <laughs> phenomenal sound-wise. Yeah. And I, I mean, what makes him good is that he's always... I can remember one show we played at um, Woodford Festival and we're known for... Because we are known as, as a kind of a party band and we're quite loud as, you know, it's got to be dance music. Yep. You need that to feel it. We were put on a stage that was right next to the, the food court and um, I didn't know what this was going on, but they were trying to get us to turn it down because people were trying to order their food and nobody could hear their orders and this kind of stuff. And, mm. So the, the organisers, some of them, the, the organising sound guys came to try to get Damien to turn it down and Damien was physically pushing them away from the um, from the, uh, from sound the desk. mixing desk yeah. and making sure it was, yeah, from the sound desk. So, yeah. we were, you know, we were loud enough for everyone to dance to. And eventually we didn't realise this, but they, they, it was such a um, kerfuffle that the the Woodford guys went and turned the, the sub speakers off so that we couldn't be that loud, you know. So it was funny, but I understood it from both sides because obviously, you know, you don't want this loud band in the middle of a food court and a festival, but also I had real respect for Damien because I knew he'd sort of he'd fight tooth and nail to make sure that we sounded good. So, so yeah. that's 
you know, it comes to mind first. Is Damien allowed back at Woodford Folk Festival? <laughs> I think everyone was cool. We wrote a letter afterwards and, um, you yeah. know, it was particularly in festival situations that there's a lot going on, a lot of things that can go wrong. Yeah. So it can be tense, but I think everyone's, you know, as long as it's, it's good intentions, everyone's pretty forgiving at the end of it. Yeah. Can you take me back now to, you said that music was something you always knew you wanted to do. So would you say like growing up, you, you went to school, is that something that you picked up an instrument or was the instrument given to you? How did this all, yeah, the seed get was, planted? It got planted. I think yeah. it was a few albums I heard. I was a huge fan of, you know, of um, funny enough, like Elton John and I had a Tubular Bells album. Um and Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells as an early teenager. I mean, I didn't seem to have a love for music until probably about 11, 12 years old. Okay. Um, but I don't think I, had, I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard Jimi Hendrix and I hadn't heard Tubular Bells. I felt really in love with 1970s kind of psychedelic rock, I suppose you'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I heard, particularly Jimi Hendrix, I was like, well, this, I got to do this for a living. This is, I, I think I spent 10 years wanting to be Jimi Hendrix before I realized I couldn't be. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it was it was just sitting and listening to records, getting lost in it, and then thinking that you could do that for the rest of your life. That that was the um, the motivational pull. Well, it's funny though because I, I do think eleven and twelve is kind of early to get into music, but I've been watching all these, listening to a lot of classical music lately, and I realise I probably started about sort of seven years too late to be, you know, um, where I'd like to be with that. That's so um, you know, you got to start early to to in music. I think sometimes. And was was it something that your you were brought up by your mum or tell me about your childhood as far as like who was influencing you? Yeah, uh, yeah, single mother uh, for most of my life. She, but she had a great record collection, um, lots of like Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. um, uh, Pink Floyd, all that kind of stuff. I'm a single mother. Shout out to your mom. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of um. You've got a, it, it's a tiresome job, you know. Yeah, I think back to it because you know she was the same as you, sort of thing, holding down full time jobs, looking after two kids, you know, no, no real help. It's um, yeah, it's a it's hard work. And then your stepfather, if I'm correct, Greek background. Yeah, like myself. Yeah, right. And so did you start to get to listen to that influence of the Greek music? Yeah, that's a good um, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. I was um, just saying that yes. I personally love Greek music and I grew up with Greek music around me. I love the sound of the bazookia. I've actually always wanted to learn the bazookia. So I definitely can hear that influence in Tijuana Cartel Project. So, yeah, I just... Would love to know how that came in, and you know how how you got to have an ear for that. Yeah, it's interesting because it's something I can't quite explain either. But it is a lot from that that my stepfather would play a lot of um, you know Greek music, but also uh, Middle Eastern music around the house. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until I was playing guitar for for a long while actually, and then we started this kind of quirky idea of having this Middle East and what we thought was flamenco sort of sound. I did my take on it. And then looking back at it, is a lot of the, the licks and wrists I was playing were, were actually, uh, you know, not quite stolen, but very heavily influenced by stuff that I'd heard as a kid. But they just kind of worked by osmosis. So, you know, um, it wasn't intentional, but it turns out, you know, that, that music influenced me on some level. And more so as I get older, um, particularly anything. I mean, I love flamenco, but I love North African and Mediterranean Greek music. Just it's... um. 
you know, I, I can't get enough of it. Yeah, same. It go, it sinks into your subconscious mind. Um, yeah, that's right. It's and in so, all of us in some way, I think, you know, it's that, I don't know, it almost feels like it, it must have come out of, you know, ancient Mesopotamia. It's, it's, it's touch. I feel like we're all connected to it in, in, in some, uh, you know, it must be part of our DNA at some point, I guess. Yes, for sure. Yeah, it definitely opens me up when I listen to it and... Yeah, I can close my eyes and just get lost in the instrumental. And, and a lot of times, I mean, even the, the lyrics don't really have much storytelling in the Greek music, but the, it was just something about the layers of the instrumental music that, you know, went straight to my soul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talking about, so the guitar, which is your main instrument, do you play other instruments as well? Uh, mainly string, I mean, really just guitar. Um, I studied sitar for a few years. We, we worked in India for a while um, in a hotel years ago. So I sort yeah. of took up sitar and I got really heavily in the, into that for a while. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. I mean, I produce, um, I probably spend even time playing guitar and even time sort of producing music on, um, you know, computers kind of things, like keyboards and synthesizers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, guitar is my, guitar is what, if I play guitar, everybody likes it more than the other stuff. So, um, I mean, I like, like merging the two, which is obviously what I've done with my career, but yeah, guitar always seems to be the thing. I mean, you're, you're so good at guitar. Is it, so this is, this is well, an instrument you. that you picked up at a yeah, young, at a young age? Uh, guitar, yeah, about, yeah, probably, I think I got a guitar about 12 years old. I didn't like it much um, to start with, and then um, I don't know. I probably by the time I was fifteen, I was I was playing it every every night, you know, every, mm. every spare second weekend. Is that um, something your mum your mum bought? Actually, my stepmother bought me that that guitar. Um, bought me the first guitar, uh, uh, but my mother paid for the lesson, so I guess she kind of encouraged me. <laughs> and so, by fifteen, you were playing it every night. Yeah, every, I mean, I slept with it. Like, honestly, this it didn't leave my side. Oh, you slept with the guitar. <laughs> not so much because I thought it was, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, not that I wanted to hug it at night. I'd just fall asleep with it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'd, I'd play it so much that it would just, yeah. I was, I was hooked on it like a computer game or something, you know. I, was, I just, um, just needed to, to do it all the time. And was there something going on that you think that that was like really therapeutic for you in your life at the time? Like, yeah, hundred percent. Particularly then, as a fourteen, fifteen-year-old, I was pretty rebellious and um, like a little bit lost, and uh, really into um, like I love Sonic Youth and and Nirvana, and you know, I, I mm. wanted to sit in my room and sort of brood, and like every teenager does. Mm. But um, that as an outlet, I, you know, really took it to an extreme. I think. Um, I mean, uh, but it, it was, you know, yeah. it was great. It was, the rest of the family would sort of sit downstairs and watch TV and I'd just hide my room and, and play guitar. I mean, today, I mean, I have a, eight, my son's turning 18 and, you know, I know teenagers that at the moment these days they're addicted to gaming and um, I would much rather, <laughs> you know, your addiction to guitar sounds like very healthy addiction to have. Um, yeah, that's it. I mean, I had computer games and all that too, but um, yeah, yeah this, the guitar seemed to, to win yeah. out. Yeah. So now let's go Tijuana Cartel. Your your partner is Carrie. Where did you two meet, and how did this journey begin? Uh, we uh, we went to high school, the first year of high school together, 
Okay. Um, and at the, t- the time, I remember um, Kerry and I weren't like that close to start with. I think we just kind of formed a um, like a bond over music. Kerry, Kerry was into, you know, even back then he was making computer music on what was then, probably nobody even knows these now, but it was like Amiga 500 computers and he'd recorded a really low bit, right? But he had, I mean, hundreds of songs in the end. Um, and you can record for no longer than sort of eight seconds and, and you can turn that into a repetitive sample and um, we'd make songs out of those. But I had no idea how to use a computer or any, or any of that. It was, it was a lot more difficult back then. So we kind of swapped. Kerry would come over and I'd teach him guitar and he'd show me how to use um, you know, computer audio software and stuff. Mm. And, then, um, and then, yeah, we, we kind of played music throughout high school. Then we went on, uh, I guess at the end of that, we went on a little different journey for a couple of years. Kerry actually got into, <laughs> really, uh, you wouldn't pick it now, but he, he was in a band called Killing God, which was like really heavy death metal. And he had hair sort of down to his legs and um, down to his knees, I should say, and sort of spikes coming off his arm, um, you know, off wristbands and, and all this kind of stuff. Wow. And then, um, I don't know, I started doing, I was in a punk band and then somehow I ended up playing in cafes, um, which I love doing actually. And, and um, I get booked as a flamenco guitarist, even though I didn't know what I was doing. And then um, and then we just slowly sort of merged back. Somehow I think we just got got over our, our um, youthful angst and it got back into what we were almost doing originally, I suppose, is, is matching guitar and um, electronic music. Electronic, like back when yeah. we were sort of 13, yeah, 13, 14 years old. Um, and then we've been doing this now for together in different forms um, for over sort of about, I don't know, about 15, 15 to 18 years. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. How do you, how do you think, what are, what are some of the tools of keeping that longevity of that relationship between the two of you? Um, we have a really good relationship. We don't argue like at all. I think we may have had a couple of years when you were younger where we did argue about things. Mm. I think eventually we realized whatever the topic is, you could kind of tell which one of us was going to be more gung-ho and, and you know, with a, a bit in their teeth about it. So you just sort of let the other one win. Um, Kerry's also very, actually, if I'm honest about it, I think Kerry takes that one. He's very placid, very understanding, very rational kind of person. Um, I mean, even though he has a lot of expression, whereas I'm a little bit more impulsive and um, a little bit more scattered and difficult to deal with. And Kerry somehow just sort of balances that out really nicely, I think. Um, but yeah, we don't argue. We don't, you know, I don't know how we do it. We can spend a lot of time together and we don't get sick of each other's company. So it's, it's good. Is he, is he your best friend? I'd say, yeah. I mean, it, it's almost more like a family kind of relationship, mm. you know. Uh, but yeah, he's one of my best friends, and yeah, I mean, I do treat. He feels like a brother, like honestly, you know, more than a than a friend, like a soul brother. It feels like you were meant to collaborate, and it's like part of your your mission here, um, because it, it comes out through through what you're both creating. I mean, there's a real balance, like a yin and yang, in what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, You've yeah, really, really pulled really on both your strengths, you know? Yeah, totally, 100%. And also, also Kerry's really into, um, he loves sort of the harder edge electronica stuff and I kind of usually like more sort of wistful, like even our diff- different styles of music tastes uh, seem to balance each other well. Work well together, yeah. And so yeah. who 
who conceptualized Tijuana cartel and you know was that sitting over a meal or you know how did that concept come into play and become a reality I think that we used to call ourselves audio shaman and that just sort of happened organically where you know I was sort of getting more and more into filmmaker let's call it and um and then I was kind of getting Kerry to come to to cafes and things and then we'd you know he'd play the keyboards guitar and electronics so we mm. joined it there and we were doing that for for quite a while um but at the same time we were going to a lot of festivals and we were really into more dance music so it, it sort of organically happened where we were playing cafes and we'd start turning the speakers up and we'd make the, the music more dancey and then people would start moving tables to dance and probably over a year or so um it just sort of turned into tijuana cartel and we, we sort of realized we needed a different name uh, from Audio Sham, and so it kind of moved into that. And then, then we got a um, we had this regular gig in um, Surface Paradise in the Gold Coast every Sunday, the and basically swing, the Swinging Safari. Well, is this is right? just before that. Actually, okay. we played okay. this place. The first one we migrated to Swinging Safari, which was okay. great. But this first one, it was like we had an eight-hour shift. We had to r- run music from I think it was one p.m. till nine p.m. Mm-hmm. And um and we didn't know what we were doing. So we tried to ha- have original music going for like hours and hours. So we just sit there and jam like every Sunday for, for hours. And then when we got too tired, we'd play some music in between. But people loved it. And, then, you know, we had sort of four or 500 people coming every Sunday night um, to come check it out. And then we moved to this other really cool, which was like this, like a, it, it felt more like a party house. It's this old Queenslander style um, little place with a couple of different rooms in it and nice little dark alleys in it and a great outside kind of place. And everybody, it was just a great place to party on the Gold Coast. And we used to play that, you know, not every Sunday, but for a while, pretty much every Sunday. How long ago was this? I, uh, I don't know. I think it must be like, I don't know, maybe like 2006, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, 2007. Mm-hmm. And along the way, the two of you have stayed, you know, strong force, but you've brought in different um, musicians that have come and been part of the the touring and the live performances. At the moment, who's performing with you now? Like um, Sheila on percussion? Yeah, we have Sheila on percussion, who's great. She's a real great part of it. Um, uh, And then we have uh, Eamon Dilworth on trumpet who's from Sydney, and then sometimes aim in these days is kind of settling down a bit. So we, we use a few different trumpet players around Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Josh in Queensland and another guy, Tristan, up here. Um, yeah, so we kind of, it's actually nice to, to have a few different uh, players uh, because, it, you know, every time we play with them, the music, it becomes different. It makes it fresh for us as well. So we kind of enjoy um, changing the band up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And Sheila, I mean, I love that. I, I love seeing Sheila play live. I've, you know, you've yeah. done several events with One Space, but how did you cross paths with her? And, um, you know, how beautiful to have female in this dynamics, that female energy. Yeah, I think it really does. Um, although, you know, not that we really think of it. You know, she was just the best uh, person for the job. Obviously, not not. You know, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we. Originally, she, you know, she used to come to our early shows and then her um, mother or auntie, I think, booked us to actually play at her 21st birthday party. Huh. And I remember that really distinctly because um, Sheila's not like, she's actually really social, but she's not one for like to have a party about herself kind of thing. So we went and played and I remember looking at Sheila, she was in the, the whole night, or at least it felt like the whole night she was playing drums in the in the garage, like practicing <laughs> drums. Um, and I thought, well, that, that chick's pretty cool. And then, um, and then slowly over the years... 
Um, and this is many years afterwards. We sort of got to know her better. And um, she was playing in a different band. Our percussionist left and it just, yeah, it just sort of worked perfectly. Just all I mean, we lined can't up. Really imagine, mm. Yeah, all lined up. I, mean, I can't really imagine doing it uh, without Sheila now. She's like such an um, integral part of what, what we're doing. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. She's she's such an integral part of that live performance that Tijuana Cartel brings everyone to their feet dancing. Yeah, yeah, she really embraced it. Like I think we had, I mean, we had good percussionists, but we always had difficulty finding ones that that really got into the music and understood it from where we were coming from. And I think she understands because she, she's she knows more about electronic music than we know, and she's also into Latin percussion you know that the the acoustic side of music um so yeah it was, it was just such a good fit it's on you know it, it's kind of a shame we didn't just snatch her when she was 21 or at a mm-hmm. birthday party really wasted all this time followed that intuition that you had back then yeah so touring is a very big part of your journey and you've managed to stay off a record label is, is that true or did you go and then come back off uh, no, we've always, we've had, we used to have distributors. Um, mm-hmm. we don't even have that now. Um, yeah, no, we've always stayed, uh, completely independent. Um, we sort of, we, uh, we kind of, we toyed with the idea of having a record company back a few years ago when we had, um, you know, there was a song that was doing all right, uh, on Triple J and it was doing okay in the States as well. And we kind of felt, well, to push it more worldwide, we should at least look at record companies, but it, it just never kind of came to fruition. I think, um, we're a hard band to be on a label as well. Like we're so far outside of the, the normal box um, that it's hard for anyone to pigeonhole us or, or to know what to do with us. Mm. Um, so, but we were quite, at the same time, we were quite happy doing it independently as well. So, you know, it, we didn't purposefully not sign to a record company, um, uh, but it didn't bother us that we couldn't get one, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just really believe in what you're both doing and want to be the masters of your own ship in a sense, like with the music, yeah, letting kind of, it, yeah. And now, now you've taken, yeah. Yeah, well, now it's a bit, you know, we're just getting into Europe. We're starting to do okay in Germany and I'm realising that it's impossible to possibly do it without help. You know, Australia might be just small enough for us to um, to do it all on our own, mm. but if we wanted it to go sort of more global, there's, there's no way we could handle it. And you, you're working now with Lou Savalaski um, from Nala Music and she's helping you with yeah. bookings and so that's great. Yeah. She, yeah, she's amazing actually and we've got another um, woman, Phoebe, uh, West Australia. We've, we have, Kerry and I have this uh, theory, it seems every time we, we work with women it goes well. Mm. Um, every time we work with guys it seems to something goes wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not that we're choosing that way but we sort of started subconsciously just, just working with, uh, with women. Um, starting with Sheila and now Lou and, and Phoebe and even the PR that we're looking at, like everything. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is. It just seems like that, that that works for us. Well, I think that there's an energy about the females in the music industry and, you know, maybe that just fits in with you at the moment. So it's nice, yeah, it must be something nice to, to hear. Yeah. yeah. Now, well, we're I'm just staying with the Tijuana Cartel and then I want to go into... Your, your music personally, um, what, it, what do you feel now with, you know, touring must have been an integral part of your, your income and at the moment we're all in this 
worldwide situation um, and the music industry has definitely yeah. been at the forefront of one of the industries that's been affected. How have you been sitting with that? Well, I've been trying to take it positively. Um, I've got all this time all of a sudden to write music, which I've been complaining about for so long because we're touring so much. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I've got my, it's, you know, I, I've come off pretty lightly, I suppose. Um, I'm a bit worried for the band, particularly even when we do start touring, there's going to be an awful lot of bands vying to get the, the same venues that we want to get. So it's going to be quite more, quite a, uh, quite a competitive industry for a while, I think. Um, not that it wasn't already. Uh, but it hasn't hit me, you know, like I, I've been able to, I'm doing all right. I've got a nice little, you know, cabin up in the, in the woods. Um, so I do feel for a lot of other musicians. The other thing is we got the JobKeeper allowance, uh, allowance, which has really helped. So, mm. so far we haven't really felt any true percussion, uh, repercussions. The only thing we did, you know, I mean, everybody's had to sacrifice something. We had a great tour book that was pretty much seeing us through till summer. And mm. uh, it's funny, I get all these notifications on my calendar as like, you know, you're supposed to be playing here today. I'm like, oh, I should really delete those things. It's really painful to think we're not there. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a little bit of um, insecurity, but I think compared to a lot of other people, I'm, I'm, you know, I can't really complain. Yeah, because touring is an experience in itself. Um, I mean, how did you find, you've been touring a long time and quite, quite consistently. I mean, as you said, you would have been on the road for the next six, six, six months, six to eight months. Um, yeah, yeah. How do you, you know, how did you feel that impacted your, your creative process? Uh, well, it's hard to, because uh, sometimes, you know, I like to practice a lot and it's hard to practice on the road really to yeah. get that space away from people, at least the way we do it. Um, and also it, when you're thinking creatively, you want that time to, to almost, for want of a better way to describe it, to be a, bit, a little bit bored, you know, like you need to be able to sit, sit and contemplate and wait and, and see what an idea is. But if you're constantly, you know, on the go touring, trying to organise um you know, it feels like we're trying to organise mini festivals every weekend in a way. It's like um, there's just no time to be truly creative. And then sometimes I worry about the output that you're making, whether you're rushing it. You know, I'm really always worried about, you know, I want to create stuff that's not just noise, not stuff that we're just creating because we need to tour or make an album. And yeah. so, yeah, all that touring was definitely getting in the way of, of us progressing as, as musicians, I think. Yeah, I mean, you listen, you know, like the story of Bon Iver is just sitting in the cabin and putting himself into that space of isolation and what came out of that. It's it's an interesting time to see how people actually use this time and, and what is birthed out of this. Exactly. I mean, there's going to be an amazing uh, music and art coming out at the yeah. end of this. You know, I know we've chatted before and we talked, we've chatted on Bondi Beach Radio and I got to chat with you when you were performing up in Newcastle and you have practised um, Vipassana and is that something, yep. you know, is it something that now in this situation you can really like take into um practice because it's something that you have put yourself in those situations of real isolation before and having to be still. So are you able to draw upon that um, now to help yourself be calm and present and not panic about the future? Yeah, you know, um, I have been, funnily enough, only the last uh, few weeks I've started uh, doing it again, like, you know, just sort of daily meditation. I don't do it for too long. Um, but it does help with a lot of things actually to to. For me, I, I use it for a lot of the reason I use it is to concentrate, you know, because even 
being isolated and you know social distancing, I did find I'm still like my attention span has been destroyed. I think just from modern technology in a way. Mm. So even if I'm watching a movie, I'm often on my phone or if I'm reading a book. I'll put it down every two pages to check Instagram or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't noticed how much that had. Um, was controlling me, I suppose, or I let it sort of get, get out of control until I was sitting at home alone. Whereas, you know, I could sit, just sit and read a book and think, oh, I'm just going to chill out for three hours. And I just didn't have the attention span to do that, where I did have that, you know, um, you know, five, five, six years ago. So I have been using it for that of just, you know, I, I do a daily, maybe 20 minutes or something. And I, and I found instantly that it just gives you that time to, um, maybe because for me, I find I have better concentration and I'm better at, uh, watching myself sort of go into bad habits. So that's that's what I find it's really handy with. I use it fairly practically, I suppose, um, the, the passionate meditation, but it really helps. Because mm. I'm really interested in what, take, what took you to the journey of um, India and you were saying you were touring over there. Was that with Tijuana Cartel? It was with Kerry. Um, we, we had formed Tijuana Cartel by then, but mm. um, also the, the side thing that we're doing, audio, shaman, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, some people like that. And we, we actually got asked to play. Um, it was a Marriott hotel in, in Mumbai. And over there, it's um, at least in that time, it was it was a really fun place to play. It was where a lot of the Bollywood stars would go to hang out. And um, you'd even see like limos would pull up to the front of the the, um, the Marriott hotel and, and you'd see all these Bollywood stars walking out. We didn't know who was who. And they had a set up basically as you walked in in the lobby and Kerry would be on what kind of looked like DJ sort of decks, and they made this huge sort of white, really plush sort of couch where I'd sit, I'd sit on and try to look cool and play to mm-hmm. all these Bollywood stars. Mm-hmm. And so that's that got us to India. Um, we went back a couple of times. Um, maybe we spent, I don't know, six months, six to eight months there, I think. And, um, yeah, at that time I was, uh, I really got into the uh, basically Hindustan classical music, uh, which is, has a really rich culture in Mumbai. Um, so I, we went weekly to concerts and we ended up, you know, playing and hanging out with a lot of musicians and, um, it, yeah, incredibly inspiring. Like if you, for any musician, I really recommend going there and getting into that mm-hmm. scene because it's the dedication they have and um, the way they treat music. And, I mean, it's just such a, a, a phenomenal level, level, you know, it's um, and in such a different way uh, and in such a different approach that I was used to at least, you know. It's a devotional practice. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. You play to God, you know. Mm. So, that's how I treat it. Or to the goddesses and the gods. And yeah. was there a mentor there that you really, you know, took to learning some practices from or a guru? I did. I had a, yeah, I did have a guru. as a uh, Guru G. Um, uh, Shankar. Um, God, I forgot. It's so long ago. I forget his first name. It was, um, but anyway. Um, mm. Yeah, I had daily lessons, five days a week, basically. I'd do sitar lessons and then um then we talk about uh basically hindi philosophy mm. um so yeah i'd get a lecture on on, on god and 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 a lesson on sitar it was it was great really um and from um it's kind of almost like a karate kid fantasy for me because you know, he had um like he, he would come in he had only one eye that kind of worked i think it worked to something like five percent so you sort of have to it was amazing he even found the hotel room every, every day and um and he was a very strict teacher. 
But on sitar, like you, you only play with on your left hand, you use two fingers. And on guitar, I'm used to using all four fingers. Mm-hmm. And so I'd accidentally, you know, use the third or fourth finger on the sitar. And somehow, even though he couldn't see my fingers, he could hear the difference. So I'd like be playing a piece and think I could fool him here. And I'd, I'd use the third finger and he'd, you know, he'd sort of scream out and, and tell me to use the two fingers. So, uh, um, I don't know, there's a lot of little stories like that where it's just, um, he, he was a great teacher, very strict, but, but very lovely. Almost like a sixth sense, you know, intuitively. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure how he did it, but yeah, it does feel like it was a sixth sense. Yeah. And I, I heard that you wanted to play the harmon, um, harmonica. Is that something that you've picked up? Um, I probably have said that, uh, but I haven't picked up. <laughs> I bought a couple of harmonicas and they just, yeah, um, yeah they, they sit in a drawer somewhere in the kitchen, I think. I have to do a trip to America or something and spend some time over there. <laughs> yeah, I reckon that bluegrass kind of, you know, vibe. Yeah, down in Appalachian Mount, mountains or something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would love to do that. Yeah. Collaborate with the rising Appalachia. The girls. Yeah. Is that where they're from? Do you know? Have yeah, you the Appalachia them? Mountains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, what, so at the moment, everything's at a standstill. If you could really like dream up where you wanted to move with music and, you know, the rest of your life ahead, how would that look without, without limitations and without fear? It's probably a really big question, but what what would one of the things, you know, often I think we look at the path ahead, but we're blocked by doubt and and fear and and just circumstances that like we're faced right now we can't actually physically go to Germany and tour but if that was all pushed aside what is something that you would really would really like light you up and just bring you so much joy to be doing if Paul George wasn't here for you know had a time limit oh yeah got you well I mean funnily enough um almost exactly what we were doing just before the you know the shutdown Mm. um I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that, yeah, I think we had a fairly clear trajectory that, that we were following that, that I was hoping would come to fruition. Mm. And um, I was quite happy with that, to be honest. And, and for once, it felt kind of simple. Like, you know, I just want to create a really good album, good music. Uh, I want to get back playing the festivals that we love so much. And, and we want to uh, get over to Europe and play there more. Um, so it's, it's that simple when it comes to music. I, I know exactly what I want to do and almost how to do it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, you know, you got to get your ducks in the row, kind of thing. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's it. Just want to keep doing it. And is there a, a festival that is like at the, or were you already booked for a festival that you wanted to play at, or is there one that you're really like aiming that that's where you want to land? Yeah, uh, we I played a Boom Festival with a Wild Marmalade a few years ago, and mm. um, I've always wanted to play there with T One Cartel. So that's on a. On a, on a hit list. Um, Where is I that? Think that's my favourite. Is uh, that's in Portugal. It's oh. like a sort of six day, um, sort of doof party. Uh, but they have a few stages that have like a lot of music stages. What I like is to be on and and different yep. sort of tents. You know. um, that's that's high on my my wish list. I really miss playing. I love playing uh, festivals. It's, it's kind of my favourite. We still get into the, the atmosphere and we love going to them. Yeah. Getting because you really get immersed in in the in the community and feed off the energy in the festival vibe, don't you, of the audience? Yeah, we we still love it, you know, and we've been doing them for over fifteen years now. And we still yeah. 
get off that energy and we still get off the atmosphere of the festival itself. Now, Wild Marmalade, Sai Malambi. I mean, I got to work with you at the Sydney Opera House with an event yeah. called Earth Beats with One's Face and we had um, Boundy, James Boundy on, on sound talking about a dream team and what, you know, how was that experience for you and, and where did you and Sai meet and start this collaboration? Uh, yeah, that, I mean, the Opera House gig for me was uh, something I'll never forget. It was probably one of my you know, favorite musical experiences, which just to thank no. you for really. It was like really, um, yeah, really, really special. I mean, just great musicians, um, you know, Ben Walsh and Matt on I mean, drums what, and so on. I mean, yeah, what a group of musicians Sai pulled together. And I mean, even just having Chris Tamoy open it and the space that we yeah. played in, you know, all together, we all created the most memorable event. I mean, it was. It was empty. really like, yeah, I feel that too. And I'm, and I'm, and, I, I, you know, it's one of those moments too where it was, it was such a great event and I really felt like I played. You know, usually I get off stage thinking, oh, God, I could have done that better or something. But that one's one of those ones where, you know, really uh, everything just felt like every, it, nothing could go wrong for me. That was, it was a really good show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Sai is really, he's one of my best mates uh, as well. Um, I've known him for, he's, he's funny, he's got a, a million puns more than anyone else I've ever <laughs> met. And um. And yeah, we've been playing music now for I think probably ten years or something. It's making me feel old saying all this, uh, all these uh, figures. <laughs> Sorry, um, right, I'm, I'm with you there. We're all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I've just hit that age where it feels like I can go. Oh, that was twenty years ago. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, I, I said it a lot. I think it's just weird to be able to say. It, you know, I'll get yeah. over it soon. Once you're eighty, I suppose you don't bother. <laughs> Sixty years ago. Yeah. Um, but you still look uh, yeah, young, so yeah. So, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so I've got a beard, so I'm trying to hide a lot of this touring. <laughs> so, yeah, Cyan, you met around 15 years ago. Is that a, in living in a similar community or at school? Yeah, well, I was I was also a real fan of, um, of Wild Marmalade. Um, I was a real fan of sort of there's Northern New South Wales, Queensland, there's a few bands but in particular, um, so ochre and wild marmalade like if you're in that you know i don't know how we fell into that but i was i guess was into that kind of roots alternative scene mm-hmm. and they, they were the the bands for me like you know for, at, at that age whenever that was that they were as big as the beatles for me like i was just really <laughs> enamored by what they were doing and, and the music they were making you know yeah so um it's funny they end up being really good friends all of them, you know. Um, so I think I was a fan of those bands and then just ended up um, uh, playing with them over the years. One of the um, performances I got to do with you was um, with your project Black Rabbit George um, at One Space HQ and, you know, it was a very personal event and just nice to see you up there, being up there in your element, I think is what I want to say. Um, did that come after Tijuana Cartel? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um yeah, that's kind of a bit more, I mean, it's what started off as a, a bit of a singer-songwriter thing. Um, I don't know why that came about. I, I think it was just the, I wanted something that was almost, at the, at the time, that was a little bit opposite from Tijuana Cartel. I just wanted to try something that was creative, but it um, yeah, didn't feel it was, um, you know, in line with what, what I was doing. I just I kind of wanted to throw out, you know, throw all the cards up in the air and, and see what happens. Um, so it's, it's been a lot of fun doing that. Uh, it's sort of changed since then, actually, um, for, for the better. I've, I've, you know, I, I realised that I'm, 
it, it's good to sort of try to take stuff from a fresh angle, but at the same time, I've been learning and getting good at certain things um, for so many years. So in the end, what I've done is tried to sort of um, uh, sort of merge a lot of you know Tijuana Cartel, a little bit of audio sham stuff, um, and this kind of I don't know how to explain it, but the singer songwriter stuff into to something that feels like um, it's it's mine, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's weird. It, it's weird doing stuff with you know. We just talked about how long I've made music with Kerry, so it's um, it, it's it's really interesting doing something solo for me. It's kind of um, it's uh, it is a little bit nerve wracking when I think about it. And because w- when I listened to Black Rabbit George, and I'd love you to explain to the listeners where that name came from. I I mean I know the story, but we can explain yeah. that. But it, it's it's very much you it's it's the depth of your soul it's the storytelling um I think that's often you're quite shy to share but it's like through this avenue you're able to share the stories in a in you know in a musical way and that's why there's this essence about that project are you aware of that like yeah yeah I think so I mean in some ways it was conscious uh decision um you know, uh, it's funny, we're talking a lot about my childhood. It's very Freudian. Um, it's like I should have got been laying out on a couch or something. Um, Sorry. Yeah, I was really obsessed. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. I like it. I, I was obsessed with it. It's my fault, the name. It comes from my childhood. I, I was really obsessed with um, Watership Down, uh, the book. And in it, um, uh, basically, you know, the uh, the, the Black Rabbit um, uh, is the kind of grim reaper that would come and, you know, uh, collect the, the dead rabbits when it was time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I suppose that's one thing, you know, I was making music that is uplifting uh, and euphoric, which is good, but there, there is another side to music as well. And I felt that I needed to explore that, you know, sort of um, yeah, to start with at least sort of darker, you know, a lot of it ended up just being sort of songs about breakups really, or um, all kind of dark thoughts or, um, you know, kind of a cathartic kind of thing. I, I didn't want to make it, the whole thing a downer. I just wanted to be able to explore different parts of being an artist, you know, and, and it's right. And the storytelling as well, I could do, I like writing. Um, I'm not, a, I don't think I'd be a novelist, but that's, you know, I do spend a lot of time trying to hone being a writer. So it was, it was a way to sort of bring that writing out into, into music. And um, I'm, yeah, it's, it's been I'm, a good I'm completely going from the back of my subconscious. No, is that the right? Like my mind here. Yeah. I don't even know if this yeah. is actually something that we have spoken about. But was some of the lyrics that you've drawn upon from some writing from a male in your family? I'm 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 not sure where I'm getting this information from. <laughs> was uh, was oh, it might you know what it might be? I wrote a song about um actually the whole concept was I was talking to my my father. He was a he was a journalist for ABC for for a lot of years. Okay, and he's written his own book about his time in the Middle East and stuff, which is, is pretty interesting. Um, but we were talking about the high um, suicide rate in Australia, particularly amongst uh, males, um, and particularly in, in rural areas. And then then he got this idea of this conversation to write a um, a country song, you know. Uh, that, basically sort of addressing this, which we called Black Dog. So my, my dad wrote the lyrics and then sent them through and I sort of, I would edit them and we kind of wrote this thing together. So, um, yeah, it's a sort of family thing. I don't know if you are referring to that. It might be that. I, I do a lot. I love that song. Half our family is really, it's a good song, I think. And, and the lyrics are great and that's all because because of my dad's writing and got nothing to do with that. <laughs> is this your, your birth father? 
Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We yeah, reconnected. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, we really as like a young adult, adult my early twenties. I moved down to Sydney and then sort of you know reconnected with him, and um, and we've become really good friends now. Yeah. Oh, so okay. So he wasn't part of you growing up so much, but then as you you got to redo this relationship with him in your twenties. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and um, I think I was quite mean to him actually for a few years there, and he kind of stuck through it. And now we have a, a really good relationship. It's nice. It's good to. It's interesting, sort of getting to know your dad as an adult, and you find you have things like we have a similar sense of humor. Yeah. We're both incredibly clumsy. You know, all these things that you wouldn't think your genes would pass on but they do you know all these character traits it's really it's um it's a bit scary but it's interesting does he look similar to you he looks yeah really similar actually particularly now I wear glasses he, he yeah he looks very close oh and and he's a writer and he's written a book it's interesting has, that, yeah. you know that even though you were living in separate vicinities that there was still this passion that came through you through storytelling and and creating music that came from that part of the gene pool you know is your mother creative um, well my mother's side they're all musicians my mother was a dancer um Ah. a ballerina and um her father was um yeah a pretty famous drummer in sydney for he was the you know the session drummer and you know through the sort of jazz era i suppose here um and so yeah, so my mother's side are all musical, and my father's side there is a lot of a lot of storytelling, I suppose you'd say. Or, um, uh, so yeah, I think yeah, I, mean, I, I didn't think thought of that before, but if I, you put those two things together, it sort of makes sense uh, what I'm doing, you know. Well, because it sounds like on your father's side, there's like that deep contemplation, thought, you know, interest in you know sharing the stories of real life, which you yeah, comes through. Yeah. yeah, that's right. My father's a great storyteller; he really is. Yeah. The song Dusty Fingers is um, one of the songs from Black Rabbit George. Yeah. Was that something that you wrote? And, I mean, there's a, there's also an electronic element in uh, with your, yeah. you know, folk style weaved in there. And that's why I loved to start to hear the influences coming in. So was that a later release for um, Black Rabbit George? Yeah, that, that was actually one of the first ones I wrote for um, for Black Rabbit George. Okay. Um, just when I was sort of toying with uh, what the music would be. Uh, and then actually from there I went more acoustic, but now I've kind of gone back more to that. Um, I think that kind of works for me. Like I think what I've learned a lot from um, writing music with Tijuana Cartel is that I like to have a beat. You know, what what I'll do is, um, you know, I mean, I do write songs often just on acoustic, but my favourite way to write is to have a beat playing somehow and then you know, I'll put bass on and put guitar on and then sort of layer things over the top of that. Mm. And I found that even on even pokey stuff, I still prefer writing writing it like it's an electronic song. writing something that you do as a daily practice like do you have a journal yeah usually 
you know, actually, I've been really slack on that last um, quite a while, actually. My, my general process is I wake up in the morning, I'll practice for a couple of hours, um, and then I'll kind of try to be creative or write, as in music, you know, create music, practice more in the afternoon. And then at night, I'd, I'd usually, you know, write for sort of fun um, after dinner or something, just to, 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 something to do. But um, uh, I haven't been writing a lot uh, for quite a while, actually. So I'm, I'm starting to feel guilty about it now when I talk about it. <laughs> but um, I think of just, you know, maybe I was trying to fit too many, I was trying to learn too many things or trying to fit too many things into um, a day, day's work. And writing kind of got left off, but, um, partly because of my laziness. Your lack of focus. No. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> what what is like, when you say you love learning? What is what are you learning? Like, because I know you're you're pretty intelligent, Paul. Like, what is something that you? Yeah, I'm not intelligent. It's just the glasses. <laughs> hopefully, that I'm for you. Uh, no, I mean, I do. I suppose you get uh, also on touring. You, you get bored. I found for a while there, I was just. Um, doing online university uh, units on on different things. You know, just uh, you got to keep your brain going, I suppose. Uh, but at the moment, to be honest, I've, I've been mainly studying, really getting to my classical playing, um, which I'm finding ridiculously daunting and hard. So everything else, is, I guess, has been put in the way, on the wayside for that. Um, but I'm finding, you know, that the ridiculous level of practice that you've got to do to achieve some of the, the sounds and technicality I want to reach. It's, it's, you know, it's a good seven, eight hours a day if, if for a lot of these players. And I find I get, you know, I kind of practice, I can practice four hours in a day. And then after that, I'm, I'm find my brain's really finding it hard to concentrate. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, in a broader sense, yeah, I do try to, I do enjoy, I enjoy reading, I enjoy writing, I enjoy doing, you know, have a really fulfilled life in that sense, I think. And being a musician has been really great for that too, because it can, I can create the time to do all those things while still doing the job I love. It's, it's, um, it's a good life. Yeah. I mean, who gave you permission? Cause I know some of the jobs you did when you left school were quite, you know, diverse. I mean, one of them even involved yeah. a fire or something <laughs> like you're getting burnt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, um, I had all sorts of weird jobs. I mean, that was one thing is all the jobs, I, the real jobs I had were so crap that I, I, I think in the end I was like, I have to make music work or I'm yeah, going to be stuck yeah. with one of these jobs for us. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I worked in a metal foundry. Uh, I, I did the night where well, we did split shifts. Um, and I thought, actually, I thought it'd be good if I just went out the whole night before so I'd sleep during the day and then I could do my first uh, night shift. And um, anyway, it didn't quite work. And uh, turning up to the shift with no sleep, and then falling asleep mid shift, and um, it's this big. You know, I was working this metal foundry, this big furnace. I woke up with this thing exploding, and, and I was so tired, I didn't think what to do. So I just ran towards the fire to try to turn. That's where the the off switch was. So uh, next thing, um, you know, I had overalls which are covered in fire. I'm sort of running down the factory floor, screaming, trying to find a, a shower. <laughs> um, and then I, yeah, that was um. Funnily enough, I think uh, then I had six months off work for the burns and um, maybe that was enough time to, to get my music career going. What an experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because if I'm honest, I don't think maybe it was because I was younger. I, I never liked working for other people. So I wasn't a very good employee. I mean, I almost feel bad when I think about it. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I honestly work very hard at what I do now, but um. I just, you know, I found it hard to work these jobs, so just sort of mindless jobs. Um, I was terrible at them. I just, I'd, I'd get vague. I would, 
not turn up to work or, you know, or explode a furnace, this kind of stuff. I I was terrible. Yeah, it sounds like that. Washing dishes kind of vibe, like. I washed a lot of dishes. Yeah. Uh, I had a job, um, maybe I've told you some before, that while we were backpacking through London, uh, the only job I could get was was called sex texting. It was kind of before, you know, uh, good internet. And I was basically... 22-year-old blonde, um, a double D breasts, I think it was, and guys would text in and I'd have to, you know, keep a, um, a lewd conversation going with them for as long as possible. I think it was like one pound per per text. <laughs> I was their best employer, yeah, apparently. <laughs> Have you used this skill in relationships? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, that, it's done me well, really. Although I probably should date a guy because yeah. That, yeah, that's, that was my full trade. Yeah, because you so you actually embodied this female role. You weren't able to be the male with females calling in. You were the no, female. There wasn't, um, yeah, because uh, basically, you know, I wouldn't be on a phone. I'd sit at home with the computer, and the text would roll up, and um, and they would choose what they wanted. I think that was it. Yeah, and then you, you could actually be the the guy, but generally it was it was ninety nine point nine percent being the woman. I love it. But yeah, I, I knew exactly what everyone wanted. I was really good at it. <laughs> So you've got something to fall back on if, you know, situations. Oh, God, I have. Even talking about that, I'm, I'm feeling... T- You're getting all <laughs> no, anxious. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. <laughs> Is it not true that you also were like selling sex toys on tele, like marketing kind of... How do you know that one? Um, yes, oh, that's I, true. You know, psychic abilities, you know. <laughs> I did that was in uh, on the Gold Coast and, and you'd have to call people in the outback and say, um, that was because that's what they said, that's where people would want to buy stuff and... <laughs> Anybody in the house enjoy adult products? <laughs> That's how that would be the opening line. Yeah. And I didn't sell any. I think I worked there for a week and I didn't sell a single thing. I just, oh. I, ended up, <laughs> I ended up just walking out because I was even too embarrassed to. I didn't want to admit it to the boss. I just sort of walked out and I, I got in my van. And I remember seeing that the boss walking down the stairs trying to, like, what are you doing? And I, I remember putting my head down for some reason and just speeding off out of the car park. And that was it. <laughs> You reminded me of like a funny story you shared about being at Vipassana and then at the last days you were in the van drinking some wine. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. God, there's a lot of anecdotes in a row. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was because yeah, if you do Vipassana, it's kind of 10 days. I thought on the, I think it's the 10 day that the 10th day that you, you get to go home. It's yeah. basically that last day you, um, you know, you talk and um, you talk to everyone around you and then they ask you to stay an extra night kind of thing. And I, I, that time I just had enough and I was trying to sleep that night and I just remember that it was a bottle of wine sitting in my van. So I thought, oh, I'll just slip out. And then I, you know, climbed over the fence, got into my van, had a little glass of wine. The idea was to, well, I did actually slip, slip back in. But, um, but yeah, as I was doing that, I could see two big torches coming towards my van and I, it was just complete, I thought I was going to get sort of yelled at by like you know monks or something. <laughs> but it turned out there was another person that just had the bail and that, that car was right next to me. So kind of hid underneath the door until, um, until they left and then I snuck back in after my glass of wine and pretended I did the whole retreat. I shouldn't admit that kind of thing, really. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, you know, everyone leave Paul George out and know that his intention was good there. Talking about yeah, that's right. alcohol and substances, how is it yeah. being on the road? Is You know, if you want to change your lifestyle and you, or, or just being a musician in itself, like if it's something that you think, you know, I really am getting to an age where I want to be more cleansed and take a new direction. 
is it difficult yeah. to stand? You know, I, as I've said to you, I've chatted with I've chatted with Ash Grunwald, you know, Kelly Dad, and um, you know that that often comes up that discussion of I've made this choice and it really changed my music and and um, my creative process. Since you know, Ash and his and Danny, his wife, both stopped drinking and smoking marijuana, and he was saying like it completely changed. Um, his performance and how he showed up on on the stage and he took up the Wim Hof breath and, you know, you've had so much experience touring and I'm sure you've been around some incredible experiences and, and you know, yeah. up all hours. Is, is that something that you feel is, is, is it a path that you want to change or is it, is it what makes your creative process what it is? Um. Yeah, that's hard to answer. It's not what makes my creative process because when I'm at home, you know, I write my best stuff um, completely sober generally in the morning. Um, I do like my late nights though. Um, so I am trying to figure out a balance with it at the moment. It's not, I don't really have a problem with much. I probably drink slightly too much is what I figured. Um, and I've been trying to, it is interesting because of the heavy touring we do and the lifestyle that we do enjoy as well. To balance it's hard. Um, I don't know if I'm the sort of person to go completely sober though at the same time. So I've been trying to find ways to kind of just learn more um, to watch myself in those things. I really enjoy life. You know, I love going out to having, like I couldn't give up going to a restaurant and having a good bottle of wine, that kind of thing. That, that yeah. um, I find that really hard to think of my life without these kind of little perks I enjoy. At the same time, it is hard because you're around it all the time. It's really easy to go off that kind of dangerous ledge with it um so yeah I, i'm hoping that you know I'm, i've been doing this for the passion and meditation again i think just to watch yourself you know as you're doing these things to kind of get an idea of like well you know um uh, how far you're taking what are you doing with it yeah um, yeah it's a hard one it, it's hard for me to answer that because i'm just going through that in the moment i'm trying to sort of reassess uh, how to approach it you know i'm in my 40s now and um i don't want to be sort of this old haggard alcoholic uh musician kind of thing that's just not me either so i'm trying to find somewhere in the middle of all that i think um it's interesting you say that though about um ash gromwald who thinks his music sort of got better i just finished uh eric clapton's autobiography as well and he sort of talks about all his rock star you know he basically had everything you could imagine he ever wanted from the time he was a late teenager and his he but he was a major you know drug addict and alcoholic uh, mm. also um and his he said his best years were when he gave up all that. He's completely sober now for God knows how long, but it's his last part of his life that he's enjoying more than all of that, all that rock stardom, all of that fame, all, all of the money. He's, he preferred to just have it, um, I guess, a, a more simple sort of sober life. It's, it seems more fulfilling. So it's interesting. I mean, it's such a, you know, everyone, it, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing. But, you know, I want to enjoy life, so it's just trying to find a balance. It's definitely trying to find that balance. I mean, I just watched... I wanted to watch it for so long, but I finally took time to watch um, the movie Ray, um, Jamie Foxx starred in. All right. Yeah. I haven't yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. And, you know, very much similar, like the, really goes into the music industry of that time and, you know, how he was addicted to the substances and alcohol. And then once he actually was forced to put himself into the rehab how the journey for the next 40 years, how that, you know, transformed in his music career. And, yeah, it's just, you know, very much similar story to what you're saying about Eric. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good one to talk about. 
Yeah, but it is finding a balance because it, you know, it's a lifestyle, isn't it? Yeah, it is, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, everyone's got to find their own way to tackle it, I guess. I mean, I think at the moment what we're learning in this worldwide, you know, phenomenal experience that we're all experiencing together is no matter what your beliefs are, it, it still comes back to that we are all in this same situation. So it doesn't really matter. All that matters is what is going on within you at the moment because you can't really, you know, even if you had a guru, they don't have the answer for what's going to happen in the next six yeah. months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. Yeah, it's exactly right. So you've got coming up um, Uber Beats because, I mean, I've been watching you online and it's really exciting to see what you've got going on. You're still bringing out new music. You're still um, interacting with your with your supporters. And so you've got this event, Uber Beats Volume 1 on May 30th. Do you want to yep. finish up and tell us, like, how can we support you at the moment, support Tijuana Cartel, support Paul George? What is it that we can do? Yeah, great. Well, that's, um, I mean, basically we're going to, uh, we're going to do one of those sort of live concerts from our, our studio uh, on the Gold Coast. And um, yeah, the best way to do that is to go on our Facebook uh, event page and, and just click on that you're going to the event and then there's a link there to get tickets, but it is like a suggested ticket price of 20 bucks, but you can pay whatever you want. Um, it's up to you. Uh, and yeah, that's probably the best way to support us at the moment. Um, all that money is basically going into us making a, a kick-ass album to, to, to bring back when we go back touring. Um, and I just started a Patreon account too. If, if you wanted to support us as Tijuana Cartel on Patreon. So Fantastic. yeah, we're trying to find ways to make it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's all looking uh, very good. And it's all about moving with the times, as we said. And and so, yeah, that's a great way to support Paul. Well, thank you for chatting with me today and giving me some of your precious time to share stories and go back in time with you. I really, you know, I look forward to see you in person and get to dance at Tijuana Cartel Performance very soon. So thank you, Paul. Thanks, Steph. Really appreciate uh, your time. Thanks for that.